When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antinomocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Welcome to Trigger Therapy, a podcast delving into the journey of life after gun violence. I'm Elizabeth, and I went through an unimaginable experience when my classroom was shot into during the 2018 mass school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Parkland, Florida. This life-altering event transformed me in countless ways, leading me to connect with numerous other survivors of gun violence, each with compelling stories that deserve to be heard. With Trigger Therapy, we aspire to foster a more understanding and empathetic society by sharing powerful narratives from survivors and professionals whose lives have been deeply impacted by gun violence. Through engaging solo monologues and enlightening interviews, we seek to create a safe space for these stories to reach the hearts of listeners far and wide. We invite you to join us on this meaningful journey of healing, so subscribe wherever you are listening. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns helps you and your kids save and invest. The best part, there's no expertise required. Investments are automatically put into diversified portfolios based on your risk tolerance. Acorns even has exclusive financial education content for your whole family. I know firsthand how important it is to save for the future when you have kids, and I found Acorns to be a crucial tool. The sooner you start investing, the more chance your money has to grow over time. From Acorns, mighty oaks do grow. Head to acorns.com slash TCFC to download Acorns to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid testimonial and may not be representative of all clients. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash TCFC. Investment advisory services offered by Acorns Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Brokerage services provided by Acorn Securities, LLC an SEC-registered broker-dealer, and member FINRA slash SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. Before we get on to the episode itself, I have to say a massive thank you to Navigating Advocacy podcast host Whitney and Melissa for sharing with us a folder's worth of official documentation about this case. Without that information, we truly wouldn't be able to give the depth of examination this case deserves. Please consider supporting their work and action-oriented advocacy by visiting navigatingadvocacy.com. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. The term closure stirs complex emotions within countless families. It's a concept that doesn't always sit well with those who have experienced the tragic loss of a loved one due to murder individuals who have endured assault, and even detectives who sense that the full narrative of a victim remains untold. The question lingers, can closure truly exist when there's no way to recover what's been taken away? No court ruling can ever resurrect a slain parent, a cherished colleague, a best friend, or erase the trauma inflicted upon a survivor of sexual assault. For many, it's entirely understandable that no amount of jail time served by a perpetrator could ever compensate for the profound suffering endured by the victims and their families. Now, 
Imagine stepping into the shoes of someone who watched their mother pass away under perplexing circumstances, or someone whose spouse attended a party and never returned home, or perhaps a parent whose child was there one moment and vanished the next. Despite all the perplexing and unsettling aspects surrounding their loved one's passing, it wasn't classified as foul play. Instead, it was ruled an accident. Perhaps if law enforcement had been open and forthcoming with the family and their legal representation from the start, you might have been more inclined to accept that conclusion. Maybe if there was concrete evidence demonstrating that the investigating detectives meticulously followed proper procedures, exhaustively documented every possible detail, and thoroughly examined all available evidence to confirm the absence of foul play, you could find belief in it. Regrettably, the situation at hand doesn't seem to align with these ideals. We are all aware that not every individual is treated with the respect and care they deserve, and not every investigation unfolds as it should. Skepticism crept in from the very inception of this inquiry, and many of those doubts remained unaddressed. In such a scenario, could you truly embrace it as justice and discover closure as the case was officially closed? Or would you steadfastly refuse to rest until every conceivable stone had been turned and every lingering question had been addressed, no matter how seemingly insignificant? We cannot definitively assert whether the death in question was a result of murder or a tragic accident. However, what we can unequivocally state is that the level of care taken in the subsequent investigation, or rather the lack thereof, can only be described as, to put it bluntly, a grave injustice. This is the story of Tamla Horsford. Okay, on to the show. Tamla St. Jour was born in Kingston, St. Vincent and the Grenadines on October 10, 1978. She was 11 years old when she and her family, comprised of Father Kurt, Mother Elizabeth, and Sister Summer, moved from the Caribbean island to New York, settling in the Bronx in 1989. Everyone who knew Tamla loved her, as one friend later remarked to police. You couldn't not like this girl. Her mother Elizabeth said that people gravitated to her energy and warmth, and it's easy to see why. Tamla was beautiful, warm, charismatic, and full of joy, with a giving nature and a love of singing and dancing that made her the life of the party. Leander Horsford, her husband, described her as having the biggest heart on this planet. Tamla's journey with Leander began in Florida, where their connection was instant and led to a joyful marriage. Leander had a daughter from a previous relationship, and Tamla embraced her as if she was her own. Their bond was incredibly close, enduring even after her stepdaughter had grown up and moved away from home. Tamla spoke with her frequently, calling and FaceTiming to catch up with each other and just chat. Leander would later describe their relationship to police, saying, She was not Tamla's biological daughter, but that's her daughter, and Tammy's her mom. Around 2004, when Tamla was 26, she and Leander welcomed their first child together, a son. After the first, the couple had four more sons, the youngest of the lot being born in 2014. Tamla had initially worked in sales, reaching the position of assistant manager, but she quit to look after their kids. It takes a lot of love to care for such a large family, and Tamla put every bit of her heart into doing so. School runs, extracurriculars, sport games, you name it. Tamla was always there when they needed her. She even volunteered in all three of the schools her sons attended. In early 2013, Leander's job required a move to Georgia, prompting them to pack their belongings and embark on a new chapter in Forsyth County. Despite the mix of excitement and nervousness that comes with such a change, Tamla effortlessly formed friendships wherever she went. One such friendship blossomed with Michelle Graves, who would become her closest friend and happened to live on the same street they were moving into. 
By 2018, Tamla was settled into a life she loved deeply. She and Leander had been married for 16 years, and they adored spending time with each other and their children. The whole family loved sports, the boys playing football locally and the parents often attending larger-scale football games together or watching them from home. Of course, both Tamla and Leander also attended the football games their sons played in, and for Tamla, this was another way to make friends. She was quickly absorbed into the friendly group of football moms, and her social circle was widened to parties and events with these women, who all knew each other through their children. Tragically, though, it was one of these football moms' parties that Tamla Horsford would never return home from. One of the other moms, a woman named Jean Myers, decided to throw herself a birthday party on November 4th, 2018. It seemed like the perfect idea for a responsible and chilled-out yet fun-filled night for everyone involved, and the invite specified that anyone who wanted to could sleep over, so nobody had to spend money on taxis or worry about getting home safely. Tamla was excited for the party, a girls' night in where all the football moms could get to know each other more and, most of all, have fun? Count her in. She packed her bag for the night, which included a bottle of Mexican tequila as a gift for the birthday girl slash hostess, and a white onesie with a paw print pattern to change into for the pajama party. At about 3 to 4 p.m. on the afternoon of the 4th, she was FaceTiming her sister Summer when her friend Michelle came to visit. The three carried on a conversation for a while, and at one point, Summer suggested that Michelle should go with Tamla to the party that night, since it sounded like fun. But Michelle declined the suggestion. She wasn't one of the football moms and thought they were not her crowd of people. Once Tamla said her goodbyes to her sister and waved off Michelle, she spent the rest of the time before the party making dinner for her family. Tamla even prepared a casserole for breakfast the next day so that everyone could get to have a nice, relaxing evening and morning while she was out. Tamla was one of the last guests to arrive at the party at around 8.30 p.m., throwing out hellos as she headed straight to the restroom so she could get changed into her onesie. She offered the gift of tequila to Jean, but the other woman made a comment along the lines that the very thought of the drink made her throw up in her mouth, so Tamla happily kept it for herself. The gathering consisted of nine women, including the host. Although it was originally intended as a girls' night, Jean's boyfriend Jose Barrera unexpectedly joined the gathering, having initially planned to go out but opting to stay in due to not feeling up to a night out. Another gentleman, Tom Smith, accompanied his wife Stacy to the party, and was invited by Jose to watch football with him in the basement, separately from the women. Tom accepted the invitation, and both men settled in to watch the LSU game in the basement, while the women enjoyed the same game upstairs. After all, they were a group of football moms. Tamla was having a truly brilliant time. In the photos and videos the other attendees took throughout the night, she can be seen grinning broadly and singing happy birthday. She spoke a lot about her sons, and everyone could see from the way she lit up talking about them that they meant the world to her. Tamla apparently drank her tequila straight from the bottle, as she had offered it around and nobody else wanted to share it, but she didn't seem overly intoxicated at any point. Besides, most of the party attendees were also drinking, including doing shots, so Tamla's behavior was completely normal in the context. At a certain juncture during the evening, Stacy and Tom Smith found themselves in a conversation with Tamla, attempting to dissuade her from driving herself home. Stacy recounted an incident from the previous weekend when they had all been together enjoying some wine. Concerned about her safety, Stacy had advised Tamla not to drive home on that occasion but Tamla had gone ahead with it, driven by her desire to sleep in her own bed. This situation had deeply worried both Stacy and Tom, leading them to assertively convey to Tamla that driving under the influence for the second time in two weekends was not an option. It remains uncertain whether Tamla had explicitly expressed a desire to leave or if Stacy and Tom were merely taking precautionary measures. Periodically, Tamla stepped out onto the balcony to indulge in a smoke, 
sometimes accompanied by fellow guests. On one such occasion, Madeline Lombardi, Jean's aunt and co-resident, engaged her in a lengthy conversation amidst the fresh outdoor air. Their discussion revolved around Madeline's relationship with her niece, as well as Tamla's connection with her stepdaughter. Tamla eagerly shared her excitement about upcoming plans to visit her stepdaughter in Dallas, Texas, especially because the young woman was expecting a child, and Tamla was eager to meet her grandchild as soon as possible. Madeline fondly remembered that Tamla had even contemplated adding an extra touch of enjoyment to the trip by considering traveling via New Orleans. It wasn't just cigarettes Tamla was smoking, however. She also had marijuana with her and smoked it on the balcony, until Jean realized and asked her to stop, pointing out that her boyfriend, Jose Barrera, was just downstairs, and he worked with the police. It doesn't seem like the conversation was particularly heated, as Tamla immediately stopped smoking anything but cigarettes, and Jean at some point referred to her as the female Bob Marley, which I'm assuming Jean thought was a friendly dig, but feels more than a little off to me. The easiest way to follow the rest of the events for the night is to follow the established timeline. A lot of the information we use is courtesy of the Navigating Advocacy podcast, who managed to obtain official police documentation surrounding the events of that night under FOIA. The witness statements in particular were hugely useful in putting pieces of the timeline together. So again, thanks to Whitney and Melissa. And if you're wondering, plagiarism? No, we did a live show together where we all had access to the information, and that's why we're doing this episode. So, Tamla had arrived late at 8.30 p.m. after taking care of her family. Less than an hour later, at 9.23 p.m., she FaceTimed her husband, Leander, and spoke with him for a while. Nothing was amiss. She just wanted to talk to him. She was happy and smiling, asked after their boys, and she got him to say hi to some of the other guests. At some point, Tamla also FaceTimed her daughter, after telling the other guests about the expected grandbaby, so the other woman could say hello to her. Around 10.30 p.m., those guests who didn't intend to spend the night began to say their goodbyes, with Nicole Lawson and Sarah Conkerman departing one after the other. Between 11 p.m. and midnight, Jose and Tom joined the remaining women upstairs, and the group engaged in a game of Cards Against Humanity. After wrapping up the game, Jean and Jose made their way to bed, while most of the other guests started to settle down for the night, somewhere between 12.30 a.m. and 12.45 a.m. It's worth noting that past midnight, there may be some conflicting information from various sources regarding specific times. This is likely due to the clocks changing, as daylight savings time ended on the morning of November 5, 2018, at 2 a.m. Downstairs, the remaining guests were still chatting, as could be heard by those trying to get some sleep. At 1 a.m., Jennifer Morell went to bed, followed by Paula Seals, Stacy and Tom Smith at 1.30 a.m. Tamla pouted about this, saying that Tom was being selfish because now she didn't have a sleeping buddy. They left their phones next to each other instead, so their phones could sleep together. The Smiths were staying in one of Jean's daughter's rooms, and Tamla was supposed to be in the room next to theirs, but they never heard her come up to the room. Bridget Fuller was the last to leave that night at 1.47 a.m. She was getting picked up by her husband, and Tamla was the only other person still awake when she left. Tamla walked her to the door and kissed her on the cheek to say goodbye, telling her she was a really good person. Bridget told her to go back inside and eat some more food, knowing she had had a lot to drink that night and wanting her to stay safe and sober up. Tamla assured her she was planning to smoke, then go to bed. The Arlo security system registered the door opening and closing at this time. As far as we know, this was the last time anyone saw Tamla alive. At 1.57 a.m., the Arlo system recorded the door opening once again. Strangely, it did not close afterward, and no one can provide an explanation for this occurrence. Early the next morning, Marcy Hardin left so that she could get ready for work. She left at 4.10 a.m. and saw nothing out of the ordinary on her way out besides the TV being left on a high volume. 
Since everyone staying over that night had been given a bedroom, nobody slept in the living room and no one caught her attention. At 7.45 a.m., Paula Seals left to much the same scene. Stacy and Tom Smith were next to leave between 8 and 8.30, needing to get home for the kids as her sister had been babysitting and would need to leave. Stacy noticed Tamla's phone was still next to hers downstairs and was proud of her for not driving home after drinking. Then, at 8.30 a.m., Madeline Lombardi woke up. Her room was located in the basement of the home, but due to the layout of the house, this meant its windows and doors looked out onto the backyard. She was starting to get ready for the day when she noticed something unusual, a white shape lying on the grass below the balcony. With a closer look, she realized the shape was familiar. It was Tamla, wearing her white onesie, laying face down on the grass, and she wasn't moving. Madeline ran upstairs to wake Jean and Jose, and when they didn't immediately respond to her knocking on the door, she ran back down to see if Tamla had moved. The second time she tried the door, Jean and Jose were awake and asked her what was wrong. Madeline hesitated, torn between shielding her niece from a potentially distressing sight and her pressing need to convey the urgency of the situation to Jose. At 8.59, Jean called 911. The recording of this call is publicly available on YouTube, and it's an odd listen. While I don't often play 911 calls, in this instance, I feel it's the most effective way to understand what happens later on and why questions still remain. Forsyth County, 911. Hi, yes, um, I, I need an ambulance. I'm afraid to my home. What's the address? 4450 Woodlet Court. 4450 Woodlake? Woodlet. Woodlet, okay. All right, 4450 Woodlet Court. What is your name? My name is Jean Myers, J-E-A-N-N-E. Okay, and your phone number is 60 Yes. Okay, what's going on? Um... We had people over last night when we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking, and we just went out outside, and she's laying face down in the backyard. It looks like may I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff. Okay, is she breathing? I, I don't. I don't know if she's face down. Okay. How, how old is she? At 41. Here, hold on. Hey, this is Jose Barrera. Hey, have y'all checked to see if she's breathing? She's not moving one bit. She's not breathing. Um, okay. I just try to assess her Tesla. She's completely face down in the yard. Um, she is stiff. Okay. Do you know if she, um, um, do you see any blood or anything? Where she? Are you there? I am. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm I was outside. It's okay. I'm not sure I happened to lie there for a second. Do you see any blood or anything to where, from where she fell? Um, I, I don't know if I should move her over. I mean, she's completely face down. Okay. I mean, can you just check and see if she's breathing? If, if she's not breathing and you, and you know she's gone, then just leave her where she's at. If she, okay. One minute. Uh, I'm completely not sure. Okay, and that's the only blood that you would see? That's what I can see without moving her over. I had okay. her face. Do you know if she was suicidal at all? I have no clue. I've met her one other time. You know, like my girlfriend said, people were over last night. Just, we were at, she was, her birthday party, we were not the woman that we believe to be deceased, but it's my girlfriend's birthday party. Instead of having everybody go out, she had everyone stay in. And she was the last one I saw before everybody, I mean, everybody was typically put off to bed. She was the last one in the kitchen. She was just either waiting around for a ride or waiting until the morning. Okay. 
How far is the um, where she would have fell from? How far is the deck from the ground? Um, I would probably say maybe 20 feet. Okay. You know, 20 feet from where your feet would be on the railing. The railing itself is maybe three and a half, four feet. And what is her name? Uh, I know her name. We call her Tam. I'm assuming that's short for Tammy or Tamra. Was she there with anyone else? Uh, her name is Tam Horsford, H-O-R-S-F-O-R-D, so the black female. I don't believe anybody was, but my girlfriend has cameras here on the back deck that we can check. Okay. That I think would have caught the incident if she fell from here. Again, I, I, true, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say if she fell from from the deck or if she was already downstairs. So you think she's possibly out um, smoking? Yeah, she was, she was the only smoker. I mean, I'm, I'm on the back deck right now and, you know, cigarettes lighter. I've had to finger out here. Um, okay. I'm just trying to see where on a list mine came from. Are all the people that were there last night, are they still at your house? Uh, okay, there are four people that were here last night that are no longer here. Okay. And they just left this morning or they leave last night? Do you know roughly what time each of them left? Like, two days completely and I'm going to put it. We can check. You know, she's got an alarm system that gives alerts when the doors are open on her phone. Okay. But I would, I, I think the last time that I personally saw Tam was probably about one in the morning before I'd gone upstairs to bed. Okay. And, and at that point, she was the only one in the kitchen. Let me see where the, everybody is. I have one um, deputy that's about to pull into your subdivision. So I'll stay okay. on the phone with you just for a minute. Um, is this going to be around back? Is that the way he needs to go? Right. So we, um, when he pulls up to the residence, uh, there will be one 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 car in the street, four in the driveway. And does he need to come we'll and go through the house, or does he need to walk around the back? Um, they they can go around to the to the side. I'm gonna grab my shoes and then I'll direct them when they get here. No, it, it it'll be easier for them because she's laying in the yard down, you know, basically on the patio downstairs. Alright, I have one that should be pulling up. Do you see him outside? Yeah. Okay. Alright, I'll let you go then. Alright, thank you. Alright, you're welcome. Bye. In the call, Jean seems dazed, rambling instead of getting to the reason she's calling. And before long, Jose takes the phone from her when he notices she's struggling. Before handing the phone over, Jean manages to explain that they had a party the night before. There was drinking, and one of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking. It looks like maybe, I'm guessing, maybe she fell off the balcony? Jose then goes on to tell the operator that Tamla's body was stiff and that there was no pulse. Police arrived shortly after, and Tamla was pronounced dead at the scene. When the news reached her family and friends, they were absolutely devastated. The party guests who had already left returned to Jean's home, shocked and distraught that they had probably been only a few feet away from Tamla when she fell. Michelle had seen her just the day before, full of life and excited about the party. Tamla had FaceTimed Leander and their daughter only hours before she died. She was happy and having a great time, and absolutely nothing was amiss. All of the photos and videos of the party cement this further. Tamla had been having the time of her life. Heartbreakingly, Leander had been trying to call her that morning and assumed she hadn't answered because the moms had gone out for brunch. He was concerned because they weren't made of money and that sort of thing could be expensive. But when he heard from the police, he wished she had been out running up debt on the credit card. Anything but what had really happened would have been better. From this point forward, the journey took a perplexing turn for all parties involved. Misleading information, suspicions of officer misconduct, murky communication, and peculiar facets of the case coalesced, leaving a cloud of doubt hovering over every aspect. Trust in the information provided dwindled. Was the investigation truly proceeding as it should? And could anyone discern its efficacy? 
The initial ripple of potential mishandling in the investigation might be traced back to the 911 call, where Jean and Jose had insinuated that Tamla's passing was an accident. This ambiguity set the stage for the unfolding mysteries and uncertainties that would plague the entire case. So, by the time police attended the scene and pronounced Tamla dead, they weren't treating the incident as though there was any chance of foul play. They were treating it as an accident. This meant the scene was not preserved. Witnesses were not promptly interviewed. Potential evidence may have been contaminated and other evidence was not collected at all. For example, no testing was done on Tamla's bottle of tequila to see if it contained any foreign or illicit substances, and there was no dusting for fingerprints anywhere at the scene. When Tamla's autopsy was carried out, no rape kit was done, and her fingernails were not scraped in order to see whether she had defended herself against an assailant. This is the first, most obvious issue the people seeking justice for Tamla have with the investigation. It feels like it was flawed from the very beginning. Admittedly, however, according to the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, or the GBI, none of the above was routine in cases where no foul play was suspected. What makes this lack of, at the very least, fingerprinting the scene Stranger is what Jose Barrera reportedly told the officer at the scene. He claimed that he had touched Tamla's body to see if she had a pulse, as instructed by the 911 operator, and he also had tried to bend her legs to see if she was stiff. He also admitted that before he saw Tamla's body, he had moved an unlit cigarette and a lighter on the balcony where Tamla supposedly fell from. No testing was done to confirm whether this was in fact the case, or whether anyone else's fingerprints were on these two items, which could have implicated someone else as being present at the time of Tamla's death. The positioning of Tamla's body when she was discovered and the injuries described during Tamla's autopsy have also been cause for suspicion. She was lying face down on the grass, with her legs stretched straight out behind her, and both feet pointed to the right. Her right arm was close to her body, but the left arm was extended and bent at the elbow. Mike Christian, lead investigator in this case, reported the following about her body. Most notable when Tamla was turned over was the fact that she had come to rest face down. Her head had not been canted to one side or the other. While not impossible, this does seem a very unlikely way for a body to land after falling from the height of 15 to 20 feet. Also, this positioning contradicts both Jean and Jose's initial report, as they both reported finding her with both arms by her sides. Investigator Andy Kalin suspected Jose may have bent Tamla's arm to check for a pulse, saying that he had received a phone call from Jose a couple of days after Tamla's death, admitting to doing so. However, when later asked about this, Jose insisted that claim was bullshit, and he hadn't moved her or admitted to something he hadn't done. Hey there, folks. I don't trust tap water, and you know what? I have a feeling I'm not alone. AquaTrue is the game changer we've all been waiting for. AquaTrue uses a state-of-the-art, four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, so no complicated installations required. It's easy as pie. For my plant enthusiasts out there, AquaTrue removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary filters, even pesky PFAS chemicals. PFAS are in nearly 45% of U.S. tap water, but AquaTrue is certified to kick them to the curb. With options for every home, AquaTrue's tech removes over 80 harmful contaminants, including those forever chemicals known as PFAS. And the best part, the filters last up to two years, making it an eco-friendly choice. And my pets love it too. Plus, it's portable, perfect for renters, and those dorm rooms. And guess what? AquaTrue makes your coffee and tea taste amazing. I've already noticed a difference. Go to my Instagram and see how I use my AquaTrue. Get 20% off any AquaTrue purifier at AquaTrue.com with code TCFC. Don't miss this incredible deal. Trust AquaTrue for pure water and peace of mind. 
aquatrue.com with code TCFC to save 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Hey there, listeners. Are you like me spending most of your time indoors? Did you know indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outside air? It's crazy, right? The EPA says so, and get this, nearly half the population lives in areas with unhealthy air quality. But here's some good news. I found a solution that's changed my life. I'm talking about the Air Doctor, the air purifier that's making headlines. Its ultra-hepa filter tackles bacteria, viruses, and allergens, leaving your air fresh and clean. And it's not just talk. Air Doctor virtually zaps particles as tiny as 0.003 microns, like superhero-level clean. My Air Doctor 3000 purifier keeps our place feeling great, circulating the air four times an hour. And those whisper jet fans? Seriously, they're quieter than a mouse. Friends, you have to try it, and guess what? Air Doctor is offering a 30-day money-back guarantee. Head to airdoctorpro.com, use promo code TCFC, and save up to 39% or up to $300 off depending on the model. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code TCFC. Let's all breathe easy together. Hey friends, fall's around the corner and life's getting busier, right? Well, let me introduce you to Factor, your new mealtime hero for those days that just don't stop. Ready for some goodness? Factor, America's top ready-to-eat meal kit, has your back. Say goodbye to cooking stress and hello to chef-prepared, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. Convenience and health? Yes, please! Summer's still shining and so are your goals. Forget about extra trips to the store. Factor's fresh meals ready in two minutes are here to rescue your time and your taste buds. Just heat and enjoy and you're back in action. Explore 34-plus mouth-watering options that won't break your stride. And if you're ready to level up, dive into Gourmet Plus meals, boosting premium ingredients like broccolini and truffle butter. Talk about treating yourself right. Short on lunchtime? Lunch to Go has you covered with quick, wholesome meals for your on-the-go lifestyle. And for those watching calories, there's a whole lineup of calorie-smart meals under 550 calories per serving. Need a protein kick? Meet Protein Plus meals with 30 grams or more per serving. Plus, Factors got you covered with 45-plus add-ons from apple cinnamon pancakes to refreshing cold-pressed juices. But it's not just about you. It's about the planet, too. Factor offsets delivery emissions, sources renewable energy, and brings sustainably sourced seafood to your table. This is your month. Say hello to effortless eating. Head to factormeals.com slash laney50. And guess what? You can grab 50% off with code laney50. That's F-A-C-T-O-R-M-E-A-L-S dot com slash L-A-N-I-E five zero. Code laney50 for 50% off. Mike Christian, in his observations, noticed something rather significant. Scrapes on Tamla's shins that appeared to align with the nearby landscape edging. He raised a valid question. Could these injuries have genuinely resulted from a fall at ground level? This inquiry was directed not only to the medical examiner who conducted Tamla's autopsy, but also to her father, even before the autopsy was finalized. However, investigators later acknowledged that this was an error in judgment, one that sowed confusion and skepticism among Tamla's family. It was entirely reasonable for them to question the notion that her demise could be attributed to a low-level fall. Mike Christian, in hindsight, acknowledged his mistake and confided in Leander, Tamla's husband, expressing regret for sharing an unverified theory so early in the investigation. This ground-level fall theory was totally contradicted during the autopsy itself, when the extent of Tamla's devastating injuries became known. Tamla's autopsy showed that she had suffered blunt force trauma to her head, neck, and torso, a dislocated wrist, cuts on her arm, face, and legs, and four different types of hemorrhages in her skull and brain. Perhaps most crucial to her cause of death, though, was the broken neck and laceration of the right ventricle of the heart that she suffered. This not only cast serious doubt on the plausibility of a minor fall as the cause, but also prompted Tamla's friends and family to question whether a drop from a maximum height of 20 feet could have inflicted such extensive damage. They began to contemplate whether the cuts on her arms, especially a significant gash on her wrist, 
might be indicative of defensive wounds. However, the autopsy process took an unexpected turn when the medical examiner captured surprisingly few photographs, complicating any further inquiry along these lines. This scarcity of visual evidence only fueled additional perplexity and suspicion. Ralph Fernandez, Tamla's family lawyer, found himself particularly taken aback by this deficiency in photographic documentation. He asserted that in his extensive experience, such a lapse was utterly unheard of, adding to the growing sense of uncertainty surrounding the case. Something else the autopsy provided was toxicology results. This confirmed Tamla had been using marijuana and also showed she had a blood alcohol content level of 0.238, which was almost three times the legal driving limit. This lined up with the amount of alcohol remaining in the bottle of tequila nobody else had been drinking, but did not correspond with how Tamla had been acting that night. According to an article from Rolling Stone, this level of intoxication is typically associated with blackouts, loss of coordination, and even vomiting. However, Tamla displayed none of these issues throughout the party, and other guests reported she had been a little tipsy, maybe, but overall in complete control of her faculties. Even this level of intoxication was contentious. Apparently, some friends of Tamla said that she had a high alcohol tolerance, which would perhaps explain why she was so unperturbed by having consumed so much alcohol. But best friend Michelle Graves, on the other hand, said that Tamla wasn't a heavy drinker. She considered her friend to be responsible and always knew her as being the designated driver on nights out. Tamla's sister Summer agreed with Michelle. Summer later told CNN, Never ever have I ever seen my sister sloppy drunk and incoherent, so I doubt that she would pick a sleepover with people she was just getting to know to start behaving that way. On February 20th, 2019, Two weeks after the medical examiner published their final autopsy report, the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office officially determined that 40-year-old Tamla Horsford's cause of death was accidental. They concluded that she had gone out for a cigarette sometime around 2 a.m. and fallen to her death due to the amount of alcohol and drugs in her system. The time of death was assumed to be around that time due to the last time the security system recorded the door being open. But this wasn't the end of the story for anybody. Understandably, Tamla's loved ones weren't so sure of this verdict. There were so many elements to the story the investigators were proposing that just didn't make sense, not even to the people who had been there that night. Investigators had contacted and interviewed every one of the guests at Jean's party, at least twice each. Their statements and the transcripts of their interviews comprised much of the timeline that I gave earlier, so I won't go over them in too much detail. None of the partygoers recalled anyone else at the party smoking. None of them thought Tamla was debilitatingly drunk, and none of them saw her doing any drugs, although they conceded hearing or knowing of the fact that she had been smoking weed. Stacy Smith, who had stayed over with her husband on the night of the party, didn't think that it was possible Tamla could have fallen from the balcony. Stacy even tested the theory herself, leaning out over the railings to see if Tamla, perhaps needing to throw up, had fallen while doing so. But the railings were four feet high, and Stacy couldn't work out how it was even possible for Tamla to have managed it, unless she somehow had a step up, which there was no evidence of. Jose Barrera concurred, saying he could only see it happening if Tamla had sat on the railing, but there was no evidence of her doing that at any point either. The partygoers themselves had not escaped suspicion, and Tamla's closest friend, Michelle, was determined to get to the bottom of what happened to her neighbor. She made use of social media to voice her dissatisfaction with the investigation and demanded that police look more closely at the party's attendance as suspects in Tamla's death. Barely a month after the incident, Jean filed a restraining order against Michelle, as she believed she was a threat to her family's safety. Jean claimed Michelle accused her of having blood on her hands, and mentioned receiving death threats and being accused of murder by Michelle and others. This petition was unsuccessful.
seven of the partygoers later joined together to sue Michelle for defamation because of her numerous posts, though this suit was also quickly dismissed. Jose Barrera's role in the investigation was fraught with complications, and that's being generous. He found himself in a precarious position as a male guest in what was intended to be an all-female gathering, compounded by the fact that he was the partner of the homeowner, where Tamla tragically passed away. Furthermore, he openly acknowledged touching Tamla's body and potentially disturbing evidence. To make matters even more complex, Jose had a background in law enforcement, having previously worked as a parole officer. At the time of Tamla's death, he held the position of a pretrial officer for the Solicitor General's office. It was alleged that he had a pre-existing acquaintance with the lead investigator, Andy Kalin, prompting Tamla's friends to raise concerns about potential conflicts of interest surrounding the case. Perhaps most concerning of all, just weeks after Tamla's passing, it came to light that Jose had illegally conducted searches in the records management system database while on the job. These searches were aimed at obtaining confidential information related to Tamla's case. This revelation emerged in February 2019, leading to Jose's immediate termination from his position. There were all manner of unanswered questions which were cause for concern to Tamla's loved ones. Why had nobody present on the night of the party heard Tamla fall from the balcony while they slept only a room or two away? There were security cameras on the property from Arlo, the same company that provided the door sensor. Why didn't they catch any of the events that night? Crime scene photos showed more than one brand of cigarettes as well as two different lighters. If Tamla was the only smoker, as the partygoers claimed, why was there a variety of smoking materials? Why didn't the police test them in case some of them didn't belong to Tamla? Another thing they thought should have been tested were Tamla's shoes. These were missing from the crime scene and anonymously returned to her and Leander's home in the days after her death. Leander considered them suspiciously clean. In his opinion, there was nowhere near enough dirt and other staining on these shoes, considering that Tamla wore them on a fairly regular basis. But the police never examined the shoes, nor asked any questions about them. If you find yourself perplexed, echoing a resounding, what, in disbelief, you're certainly not alone. It's truly baffling how the police seemingly overlooked a pair of anonymously returned shoes. While there might not have been a formal crime scene at that point, one would expect this discovery to raise suspicions for any investigator. Regrettably, only a portion of these questions has been met with answers, and very few of these answers offer concrete clarity. However, one matter that can be definitively addressed relates to the security cameras, which happened to be non-functional at the time of the incident. This revelation in itself raised eyebrows among many observers, seemingly too conveniently timed. However, Arlo records indicate that the camera batteries had been due for replacement for a considerable period and had eventually drained just three days before the pivotal night in question. The loud volume of the TV and the number of walls between the outside and where people were sleeping may have dampened the sound of Tamla's fall. She may not have screamed due to the shock of slipping, and the only inhabitant of the house on the same level as where Tamla's body was found was Madeline Lombardi, who slept with a white noise machine running. The cigarettes and lighters could all have belonged to Tamla, though I couldn't find anything to confirm or deny whether she used the brands captured in the crime scene photos, so none of this is certain. The shoes are a mystery. Perhaps someone had accidentally taken them home with them that morning, confusing them for their own. In the case of murder, the shoes might have been intentionally removed and cleaned to conceal extra information about the circumstances of Tamla's death. But it isn't clear why the culprit in that case wouldn't have simply dumped or destroyed what could have been incriminating evidence. That the police did not look into this at all just goes to show one more avenue where the investigation was not in any way thorough enough to be reliable. 
And that does not cover what is likely the most pertinent question of all. Whether Tamla's status as the only black person in a house full of white people had anything to do with her death and the alleged mishandling of her investigation. Unfortunately, there's an unsettling historical backdrop in Georgia that lends credence to the notion that race may have played a role in this case. Specifically, Forsyth County, with its predominantly white population, carries a dark legacy of systemic racism, both in its past and present. As far back as 1912, the county was marked by a horrifying episode of racial cleansing. This occurred following separate incidents where black men were accused of assaulting two white women, one of whom tragically lost her life. In response, white residents formed a mob that terrorized the homes and businesses of black people, leading to the expulsion of the entire black population from the county. For a more recent example, in 2014, a white man named Chris Shelton was compelled to resign from the local police force when photos surfaced of him posing with racist caricatures known as Mammy Dolls. In 2016, he actively supported Ron Freeman's campaign for the role of sheriff, and once Freeman assumed the position, Shelton assumed the role of deputy coroner for the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office. While Shelton was not directly involved in Tamla's case, the disturbing pattern of overlooking clear acts of racism within the system should not be dismissed lightly. And if the mere mention of race raises eyebrows for some, spare me your emails. The evidence is hard to ignore. Tamla Horsford's death and its investigation only became widely known during the Black Lives Matter protests that began in the summer of 2020. This was a year and a half after Tamla's death, and more than a year after the sheriff's office ruled it an accident. Tamla was another black woman who had been failed by the justice system that should have protected her. Her name was spread around social media and written on protest signs. Celebrities like Kim Kardashian and 50 Cent shared her story, and people flocked to sign a change.org petition demanding the reopening of the investigation. This petition asked that the FBI be called in to reinvestigate the case, and has garnered over 720,000 signatures as of the writing of this episode. One unfortunate but inevitable result of this case gaining media attention was the spread of misinformation. Thanks to tabloids, clickbait sites, so-called influencers who only care about the numbers, their post-reach, and well-intentioned individuals who didn't stop to fact-check, Amla's death has become well and truly sensationalized. We have no way of knowing how much damage unsubstantiated claims did to the investigation. Viral posts asserted that Tamla was beaten and thrown off a balcony, and that the partygoers were covering up her murder with their political ties and lots of money. One misunderstanding that went mostly unexplained was the rumor that there was an hour between Madeline Lombardi seeing Tamla's body on the grass and Jean and Jose calling 911 something that had already been raised and cleared up as a misunderstanding due to the clocks changing that night. But seemingly as a direct result of the public pressure, on June 12, 2020, the sheriff's office announced they were reopening the investigation so that the GBI could look into Tamla's case. They would carry out an independent investigation into the circumstances surrounding her death and the police work that followed and see if they could come to a different conclusion. For many people, this was not enough. They didn't believe a truly independent investigation could come from within the state. Ralph Fernandez, the lawyer representing Tamla's family, was one of them. He insisted that, based on past experiences, the GBI was compromised when it came to cases involving the deaths of black individuals and would not handle this reinvestigation appropriately. The GBI inquiry lasted from June 20th to May 2021 spanning just under a year. Although some new information was unearthed, they ultimately came to the same conclusion as the investigators from Forsyth County. They concluded Tamla's injuries were consistent with falling from the balcony, that it was accidental, and there were no charges to file against any individual relating to the incident. The biggest finding from the GBI inquiry regards the inappropriate behavior of another investigating officer. In fact, Forsyth County lead investigator Mike Christian 
In late 2020, he resigned from his post due to an investigation into allegations that he had been sharing confidential information from his cases to members of the public. Specifically, Mike Christian had been having multiple affairs with women who claimed to receive photos taken at crime scenes, among other information, including toxicology results and investigators' theories. One girlfriend claimed that she received a photo of Tamla's body, who Christian referred to as Porch Lady, showing a ludicrous lack of respect for a recently deceased black woman loved by so many people. Further disgusting messages were obtained from Christian's Snapchat, one of which seems to joke about informing Leander Horsford about his wife's death. This message includes the sentence, Hello, sir. I know we've never met, but I'm here to tell you that your wife and the mother of your six children is dead. Oh yes, I am happy to report that she was really, really drunk. Trip landed face down in the backyard and... I know you have fun memories. Enjoy corralling these six boys who are now going apeshit. Christian also claimed to one girlfriend that he suspected Inspector Kalen and Jose Barrera worked together to create a story for the partygoers to stick to, saying he had found evidence of phone calls between the two men. This claim has been debunked entirely as no phone calls took place between those two on the morning of Tamla's death, and Jose had not even used his phone after midnight. Christian admitted to sending the Snapchat messages, but vehemently denied sending photos from crime scenes or speculating about phone calls between Kaylin and Jose. But none of that helps solve what happened to Tamla. None of that grants solace to her family or brings us any closer to the truth. Tamla's family has never given up on finding the truth, and on their behalf, their lawyer, Ralph Fernandez, has never stopped campaigning for the FBI to take over her case. He strongly believes that homicide has never conclusively been ruled out by the authorities in Georgia, describing his dealings with the investigators difficult, challenging, and adversary. Fernandez cited the wounds to Tamla's arms, the lack of autopsy photos, and conflicting information between witness statements as needing further investigation in order to rule out murder. He has faced a lot of frustration in dealing with the police, particularly when requesting autopsy photos for the purposes of independent investigation. Despite multiple attempts at acquiring the photos, Fernandez was only ever ignored or told they were waiting for permission from Tamla's next of kin to release the images. In Fernandez's words, the case is compromised from start to finish. I'm not saying that somebody killed her. I am saying the overwhelming possibility is that this was foul play and it was mishandled. Well, I think that about wraps up our episode. We're all left with more questions than answers, and even fewer answers that are satisfying, and I can only apologize for not being able to do more. At the end of the day, I can't tell you what to believe. We have no real idea what happened to Tamla Horsford, or what truly caused her death in the early hours of November 4, 2018. All her family asked for were answers that make sense but because of the apparent mishandling of the investigation that followed, those answers may forever elude them. What we do know is this. Tamla Horsford was a 40-year-old woman, a devoted mother to five boys, ages 4, 7, 11, 12, and 14 at the time of her passing, and a loving maternal figure to Leander's grown-up daughter. She cherished her six children above all else and was brimming with anticipation for the arrival of her first grandchild. Music and dancing held a special place in her heart, and she possessed a heart of gold. She was always the life of the party, adored by everyone fortunate enough to know her. She deserved so much more than the hand fate dealt her. Anyone with tips regarding the death of Tamla Horsford should call the Georgia Bureau of Investigations at 1-800-597-8477. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at true crime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash true crime cases W Laney and Instagram at true crime cases with Laney. 
Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at LaineyHobbsBO or on TikTok at LaineyHobbs. And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of The Inky Paw Print, with content editing by Laney Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at theinkypawprint.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.